Okay, the big question, are super shoes really super? Let's find out on today's episode of The Movement Movement, the podcast for people who like to know the truth about what it takes to have a happy, healthy, strong body, starting feet first, you know, those things at the end of your legs. Um, we break down the propaganda and the mythology and sometimes the outright lies you've been told about what it takes to run or walk or hike or play or do yoga or CrossFit, or, you know, what you're going to put on your feet, which is going to be today's topic, obviously. I'm Stephen Sashin, co-CEO, co-founder of Zero Shoes, and we call this the Movement Movement Podcast, Was we, that includes you, I'll tell you about that in a second, are creating a movement about natural movement, letting your body do what it's made to do, not getting in the way of doing something that, you know, you can actually do without whatever gets in the way. And here's how you can participate. Really simple. Uh, leave us a review somewhere. Give us a thumbs up. Hit the bell icon on YouTube. Go to www.jointhemovementmovement.com to find previous episodes and other places you can engage with us on social media and engage with us on social media. In short, if you want to be part of the tribe, just subscribe. So let's have some fun. Uh, Jay Sherry, tell people who you are and why you're here. I'm a guy in a cape trying to become more super with super shoes. <laughs> no, you're much more than a guy in a cape. <laughs> uh, no, Steve, um, thanks for having me. I'm a physical therapist, a researcher, and I'm part of the uh, faculty and the PT program at Oregon State University and founder of Mobo, um, a tool to improve stability and balance in your feet. I do a lot of validation innovation testing for a number of different brands. And I think the reason we're talking today is to try and uh, dig deeper and a little bit about what's on this whole myth. I think people get um, focused on the hype and they need to bring back to reality a little bit. So yeah. I love you so much. So let me, before we do that quick uh, endorsement, your MOBO, M-O-B-O, the MOBO board, great, great product for building foot strength and balance and uh, all the things go along with that. So um, is it moboboard.com? M-O-B-O board? Yeah. Check that out when you have it, when you have a moment. That's the earliest promo I've ever done for a product on, you know, however many hundreds of these podcasts I've done. Okay. So I have a lot of opinions about this whole super shoe thing. You have been asked to throw in yours in many situations lately. Do you want to do the high level overview of, let's start with what people are calling a super shoe, what claims they are making about them, and then the fun that will happen after we decide to dive into all of that? Yeah, for sure. So um, I think the biggest thing to understand is that um, when you think about cushioning in your footwear that you've had for years, decades, right? Those shoes, basically, when you when you walk and run, um, your body weight compresses that cushioning, and then it will sort of return back to where it was. It doesn't do so very fast uh, and doesn't do so very much. And when you look at these new category of super shoes, we have to use a different vocabulary. In fact, the word cushioning isn't even there. It's actually better thought about as compliance. Right. So imagine jumping on a uh, on a, in a mushy pad, right? Like a foam pad. Um, the pad just kind of gives and you land soft. You know, you land, it's, it feels cushy, but you don't really bounce back. And now imagine jumping on a diving board or a trampoline, right? When you distort that diving board, you bend it down. Or when you jump on a trampoline and bend the trampoline down, it actually springs you back up again. And that's a key distinction. Well, I'm going to wait. I, I got to pause on that a little. Because as a former All-American gymnast and prior to that, former nationally ranked diver, the diving board is amplifying what you are doing with your legs. But if it weren't for your legs, none of that shit would happen. And what makes it work, I mean, let's think diving board in particular. What makes it work is that you literally tune the diving board. You change the fulcrum of the diving board to get the maximum interaction between you and the board. If you just literally went to the end of the board, jumped on it, and didn't use your legs after that, there would be no compliance. I mean, you basically, the board would just like make your legs pop up to your face and you'd totally. break your nose and nothing, nothing good would happen. So I want to make it clear because the implication 
not, not intentionally, from describing what you said is that these things are in fact acting like a spring or acting like a lever, which I would argue is not the case since, so, okay. And you were shaking your head to, in a, shaking your head no as in agreement with that comment. Yes, let's break it down a little bit. So uh, people say, what's the fastest shoe? Shoes don't race, people race, okay? <laughs> let's make that clear. The issue though is, when you, and I, and I actually use that analogy often about tuning the diving board. Um, those of you who are unfamiliar with this, if you go to your, your natatorium or your pool around town, some of the competition pools, well, all the competition pools have a diving board that has a, a big, usually Wheel. white dial right next yes. to it. And you can move that dial forward or backward to sort of match the load or the energy that you're going to invest in a diving board and have it return with you. And one of the really important notes about that analogy that Steve and I just made is that these shoes only work when they're tuned to you. And I want to make that really clear. Dude, dude, I can't tell you how many times I have said that exact phrase on previous episodes. The moment the first big shoe came out, I started saying, all foam is tuned to a weight and speed. And if you're not that weight and speed, you are screwed. 100%. 100%. And so, and so for those of you who want particulars on this, right? So unless you're in, and it's a little bit of a range here because it, it depends not just on your body weight, depends on how fast you're running, depends on the your type of running stride you have too, right? So in general, okay, these shoes are tuned for people in the 110 to about 145 pound range, okay, who are running really fast, okay? Um, so I'm not saying that if, that if you're one of those people, it's going to work for you. One of my good friends was in the original Nike 4% study, uh, and he is one of those people. He's 145 pounds, and he's like a world-caliber runner, and he had no improvement uh, in, in these super shoes. So it's not just weight. It's not just speed. There's a number of things which are kind of a little more complex to discuss that have to do with stride dynamics. But but how you load that spring, I think the important thing to talk about the super shoes is it's not cushioning, right? So maximal cushioning shoes, again, it was just like – compress and then they, you know, they take an eternity to sort of return. They don't really rebound. What the crop of super shoes is doing, as he said, you do have to have tension in your legs for sure. Um, but the shoe does actually distort and then the shoe does spring you back up again. And I think it's really important to understand that if the spring is tuned to you, you can have a some result. If a spring is outside your range, you're not going to quite have that result. And so the reality is most people are watching, you know, videos of Kipchoge running and want to, you know, run like him in these issues. And again, that shoe was tuned specifically to him, not just right. somebody his weight. It was tuned to him. And so they alter your stride, right? And that's important to understand it, it takes you out of your normal movement pattern. And I'll make that really clear because I'm going to preface this and, and just say this bluntly. I've been around since these things, well, even before they were invented, but um, I, I, I've been around since these shoes first came to market. And I had two athletes who were given this shoe because the company said, oh, we have this new shoe. It's going to make you faster. And every athlete in the world wants an advantage. And both those athletes got hurt to the point where they missed Olympic trials and missed the Olympics. And I'm going to preface this again by saying those are two both previous Olympians who were pretty much, it was their race to lose. So I come from this as trying to make sure you can keep showing up every single day. And I want to be clear, this shoe technology does have a role, but it also has a very big downside if you're not very careful about how you adapt them. I want to throw in uh, my hat in that ring. When I first saw a handful of Olympians that were on the track with me who switched to these shoes, this was, Jesus, you know, 12 years ago, the first one or 11 years ago. 
And um, I said to them, I'm watching how they're running and I'm watching how their gait changed. And they were all overstriding, landing with yep. their foot too far in front of their body, landing on the heel. And I said to these, and these were Olympians, I said, uh, you got two years till your knees are shot. And they went, no, I'm putting in more miles than ever. These are great. I went, two years till you're done running. Two years later, it was two of these guys. Two years later, they became cyclists. And so talk, if you can, though, God, where to begin? There, there's so well, much. Well, can, can I jump on that real quick? So yeah, your antidote is actually true, right? So um, there's a research paper that came out that, that looked at a group of people running in traditional footwear versus super shoes and found that it actually does switch your cadence, right? So right. less under a rock, all the research in the past, you know, 10 years or so has come out showing if you can actually shorten your stride, move your contact point closer to your body or your, your foot strike closer to your body, um, you can have less joint stress. It's basically the knees, but a bunch of locations, right? And so this shoe technology does the opposite. It actually cues runners to contact further in front of them. What does that do? Well, it gives more time to load the spring and have it rebound. That's how the technology works, right? That's just given. But what it does to you, it changes joint stresses a lot, okay? And I want to be clear. Imagine if you went and ran every day and you said, this is what I'm used to. And then I said, let's go play basketball. The next day you're like, whoa, I'm super sore. I've never moved that way before. That's what super shoes are doing to your gait. It's totally different. That's interesting because, you know, um, so we have a mutual friend, Jeffrey Gray from Helux, and Jeffrey and I sort of, mostly him, I will confess, came up with a, a theory about why people are claiming to be running faster, regardless of whether they're in that 110 to 145 range, regardless of how fast they're running. And it was, well, there's two, comp there, there are a couple of components. I'll give you the ones that he did, then I'll add mine. His was... The shoes are light enough, at least the new ones are. The original Hocus, for example, they weren't. They were heavy, but they've gotten super, super light. So it's not really altering your cadence because of the weight at the end of your limbs. Um, and because they're so high, you're kind of running on stilts. So if your cadence is the same and you have that extra height, you could arguably be getting an extra inch or so out of your stride length. And speed is just stride length times cadence. So... So that was his thing about why people might be running faster. Mine was, that may be true. Um, and let's not forget two things. One, or a couple of things. One, massive placebo factor with almost anything that you're doing in athletics. Totally. Two, if, you, if, you're, if you're in the top, I'm making this up, top five in your event, and someone shows up in some new shoe and they beat you, what do you think you're going to do tomorrow? You're going to go, go buy that shoe. Yeah, you're going shopping. And so, um, so you know, the fact that everyone adopted something and the fact that people have been getting faster in certain events anyway, the idea that the shoes are making them faster seems a little suspect at most. And then the last part to that is it may be also from our acquaintance, he's not a friend of mine because I haven't met him yet, from Tim Noakes, who's got this idea of the central governor theory, this part of your brain that tries to keep you limited from hurting yourself, but so you don't hurt yourself. And when you put on some product that you're told is going to make you faster, and by the way, that as you and I both know, and we can dive into this, maybe the whole idea about 4% was complete bullshit from the beginning, but you have the idea it's going to make you faster. When you're getting those normal signals that you get from your brain telling your body, whoa, whoa, slow down, you're doing too much, you're going to reinterpret, possibly reinterpret that. So I'm going for a big psychological component. And last but not least saying, you know, there's still people who are setting personal best and beating people in super shoes. So it can't be just the shoe. And sorry, last but not least is my favorite part. The marketing is, is fascinating that they're being marketed for everybody. My favorite part of this, um, oh wait, that thought just flew right out of my head. That's really annoying. Um, oh, there it is. There was an ad from a company that I won't name by name. Uh, let's just say it rhymes with Nike. I mean, really rhymes very well with Nike. 
they they said the shoe gives you the feeling of propelling you forward. And I put some of these shoes on and it gave me the feeling of something because as my heel was coming off the ground, to your point, the foam was expanding faster than my heel was moving off the ground. So it tapped my heel. But since my heel was already off the ground and the shoe was already off the ground, it's not doing anything, right. but it gave me a feeling that something was happening. And if you get that feeling, that might make you inspired to keep you know moving differently, moving more, et cetera. So anyway, that's my little rant in the middle of this. Yeah, I mean, for sure. There's, I mean, there. Anybody has ever put on a, a racing spike, right? What do you? It's like I laugh. Like in, you know, I, I ran in high school, and you, you know, you train all week, and your trainers, right? And then you, race day comes along, and you under your bed, you pull this box of your spikes out, and you open it, and like this angel glow comes out, and you hear music. It's like, oh, it's go time, right? Like yeah. you're in a different mental state, right? It's your race yeah. shoe, you go to race mode, and so it definitely there's a a psych factor there for sure. And you know, I'll be clear too, like you run different in a racing flat, you run different in a spike, right? So like, well, I'm going to, wait, I want to interrupt on that one. So yeah. when I was in Bill Sands lab, um, where he would have you come in, he was, for people who don't know, former head of biomechanics for the U.S. Olympic Committee, had a lab out in Western Colorado. And um, he would have you, he would analyze your running in like every shoe you've ever run in. And what we saw is for most athletes, every shoe you put on changed your gait. And for all of those people, they didn't notice, but there was mostly middle distance runners, 800 to milers in particular and sprinters. So pretty much anything from a sprint to up to, you know, maybe a mile, you could pretty much put bricks on their feet and nothing changed. It was just amazing. I mean, they would, you know, they just had that gate locked in because that's the thing, especially the milers and marathoners, if they're doing shorter distances, because they just have that pattern so ingrained, nothing got in the way of that. It was fascinating to watch. Yeah. You're more important than the shoe and your technique, your form, all the parts you build since day one, right? That that's the most important thing. If I can even back up and take a bit bigger step on this, like you, every single time you do anything, you're putting a load to your body, right? And so the more you can load your parts in a beneficial way, the more you'll build strong bones, strong tendons, strong muscles, stronger. And like, and that's important, right? And so what, you know, people are looking for the easy way. How do I opt out? How do I find an advantage? How do I get something yeah. easier? And let's be clear here. When you put a super shoe, or I'll tell you, and it's not just telling you, I'm giving you research, even a maximal shoe, which is not a super shoe, but they have high stack heights that have lots of rocker in the forefoot and the rear foot. You are literally, and we've done research on this, multiple papers have validated this. You are offsetting the load at the foot and offset the load at the ankle. Okay, so what you're doing is you're actually letting you roll through as you take a step versus having to absorb and propel yourself. And so if you said, hey, can I move a little bit easier in these highly rockered shoes? The answer is yes, you can. Okay, we know this to be true. But guess what? You are offloading your body. And when you offload your body, guess what happens to your body? It becomes weaker. Period. Let that sink in, please, because it's really important. You know, you want to train comprehensively. And ha there's nothing wrong with having a race day shoe. If it, I mean, I'm not talking super shoe. A race day shoe, yeah. it's fine. But just understand that things are, are changing when you're in different footwear and you're giving your body different stresses. And so what I tell my athletes is I need you prepared every single day, right? And that means we're doing things not just in the offseason, the winter, in the gym. We're doing stuff year-round forever, right? As long as you have goals to move your body, you need to take care of it. Like, 
again, let that sink in too. Um, but you know, you need to take care of yourself and I want to make sure you're ready for whatever it is you want to do. And so if you're training a way which is sort of shifting loads around, that lends itself to injury. And I'm gonna give you a concrete example here. Okay. Let's say you've been somebody who has been whatever shoe you've been in, all of a sudden you have a raging case of plantar fasciopathy. Okay. Your foot hurts and you've been told, don't walk barefoot. You know, you need to be in a, in a shoe, a super supportive shoe. And so you may go to the store and they may say, oh, we've got these maximal shoes here. They'll let you kind of roll, right? And so what happens is your foot and ankle don't have to bend as far. And therefore, there's no strain yanking and lengthening that plantar fascia. And you may say, I feel great in this maximal shoe walking around and I don't have any pain. Awesome. I'm glad you feel a little better acutely, but long-term that is not a helpful environment in any way, shape and form to improve the tensile strength of that tissue and improve the control inside your foot so that you don't wind up here to begin with. Right? So it's like, if you were hurt, what do we do? We'll give people crutches. Do we say, great, you have a pair of crutches. I'll see you when you're dead. No, <laughs> like it's a temporary thing, which might have a purpose, but we need to get you off those crutches and teach you how to support and stabilize your body. And that's irrespective of footwear, right? Like you need yeah. to show up ready. So, um, you know, just when you look at what you're doing and you probably, if you're listening to me, you probably think, oh, probably need some different type of shoes and probably need to spend a lot of time in some minimal footwear, right? To make sure I am ready. Yeah, that's the whole point. Well, it's funny, like as a sprinter, everyone says, you know, you you, you have to get out of your spikes as quickly as you can when you're done racing because otherwise you're going to screw up your Achilles. It's like, no, 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 no. You're only, your Achilles is only uh, potentially vulnerable because you haven't been in a flat or, or your spikes all along. Totally. There's no Now, there are reasons to get out of your spikes. They're so damn pointy and squeezy and whatever, and they screw you up in other ways. But the idea that I can see this just with runners in my neighborhood where whether they're in a super shoe, a maximalist shoe, or anything other than a, a truly minimalist or barefoot shoe, these are a lot of good runners. And first of all, I love that, that you brought the whole rocking idea because none of these people rock from heel to toe. They're all landing midfoot or on the forefoot. And even the heel of that big, thick shoe is not coming anywhere close to the ground. So they're basically training their Achilles to only stretch a certain amount. They're telling their brain, this is as far as I can go. And then they put on something minimalist and they go, oh, see, I hurt my Achilles. Like, no, no, you just hadn't gotten given your brain the info to let you to remind it that it's safe to do that. So you were just having, you know, you were fighting with your brain effect. And the, uh, for anyone who knows Feldenkrais work for his bodywork methodology, it's all about reminding your brain what your body can actually do instead of the limitation you have taught your brain that you have. So, and even with the whole rocker thing, I love when they talk about uh, the shoe companies talk about, you know, making that transition from heel to toe and back to your mentioning Kipchoge, you watch the first hour and 30 minutes of that sub two hour marathon and his heel never comes close to the ground. And then he's just trying to get to the end and all hell breaks loose. But the other thing about Kipchoge, uh, he had a, an, a couple articles that came out and got squashed pretty quickly where the headline was something like, it wasn't the shoes, it was my legs. That article disappeared surprisingly fast. And, and sorry, and back to the 4% thing for the fun of saying this, that all came from a, a lab right down the street from me in Colorado from Roger Crom's lab where he was seeing what he said was a improvement in VO2 max of 4% for everyone who was wearing these shoes, which was not actually accurate. There was people that got kicked out of that. But um, but Nike then turned that into 4% improvement and meaning 4% faster. And Roger, in a second article, said, yeah, I'm not saying it's faster. I'm just saying it's 4% improvement in VO2 max because if it was just VO2 max, we'd line people up, we'd get their VO2 max, and we'd hand out awards. So I've been seeing more and more 
of what we've just said in the mainstream press, in the Washington Post, in the New York Times, in running magazines, but sales are still going through the roof like there's no tomorrow. What do you see as what's happening in the industry and what are you projecting given that more and more people are starting to go, hmm, this is not as good as I thought. And oh, by the way, there's, I'm just waiting for the research about the number of ankle sprains, wrist breaks and clavicle breaks. Yeah, I mean, you know, we we chase polarity, right? Nobody looks at common sense. They look at headlines and shiny things. And so right now, super shoes are shiny things and people are looking for those. I mean, I, you know, I hope at some point in time we'll have a return to common sense and the fact that as an athlete, you know, and as somebody who wants to take care of their body and do things you love to do, you take care of yourself. You know, it's funny to me, we had, you know, quote, conventional footwear for a long time. And then people say, oh, the barefoot movement happened. Like, who the hell is it? What the hell is a barefoot movement? We all have feet, right? Like, and, you know, there's still skeptics come out and say, oh, the barefoot movement failed, right? And like, look at the wall of any running retailer today versus 15 years ago. It's categorically different. It's not even remotely the same. So the barefoot movement didn't fail. Shoes have gotten more, you know, I would say less in general, right? And then we had Maximal. Maximal was a shiny thing. And so they chased that pendulum. It shifted the other way right and so you know maximal footwear is interesting right there's a there's a whole i'm gonna say this story is interesting this is yeah not super shoes these are these are high stack high high off the ground shoes that are not designed to be springboards right they're they're just big cushion blobs and um there was a a, an elite training team in oregon uh, which i'm not going to name who is sponsored by one of these brands um and it was interesting the coach called me up one day said you know I'm, i'm really confused i'm like what's up he said well when my athletes use their own shoes they run their splits and when the athletes put these new shoes by the sponsor on here, none of them can hit their splits in the track. They they run slower. They can't run the same speed. And I was like, oh, it's easy. And he's like, what do you mean it's easy? And again, you tune your body to be, as Steve said, stiff in your legs, right? And when you put this big marshmallow onto your foot, right, you're changing the timing of how that whole process takes place. And those big mushy mushy kind of cushions underfoot can't respond to the fast contact times running fast. And so we are talking about people running fast. I'm talking about running a fast marathon. I'm talking about running a fast mile, right? Running a fast 800, right? Fast anything, really. I mean, dude, I put one of those shoes on my feet. I took three steps starting to sprint. And then I stopped because I felt like I was in a foot of sand. Yeah, totally. Because that shoe is just the wrong environment, right? Yeah. When you you need to be on thin, firm, and light when you're looking to go fast, right? You need to yeah. stiff, stiff, this lever. And um, interesting, there's a study, I found this years ago, and I, and I can't really need a reference, but it was interesting. The study basically showed that, uh, again, you have to forgive me, I'm a biomechanical dork, but we look at something called modeling, right? We actually can model how stiff your foot is at various aspects of the gait. Um, and, you know, for a long time, shoe companies said, we have a, quote, stability shoe to stabilize your, uh, you know, your foot. No shoe will ever even approach the inherent intrinsic stability and stiffness of a human foot. Right. Your foot muscles are putting out hundreds of pounds each, right, to hold that system stable and under control every single stride. And that's their job. They're awesome, right? And when you put this big squishy thing underneath it, you can't feel what you're supposed to do. And so your body's confused and you can't generate force as fast. And so people always say, what's the one thing you're chasing, right? You're chasing this thing called rate of force development. How fast can I apply force down to the ground to propel me forward? And when you put soft, mushy junk underneath, you and inhibit your rate of force development. Um, and so it speaks to the fact that, again, shoes do change your gait, period, right? right. And so you have to understand that it, it, you said, I'm, I'm giving you a very long-winded you know, answer for what I think is coming, but I hope we look at, you know, what's the goal, right? Is the goal to, you know, 
make my foot work, and I don't mean that in a bad way because I want my foot to work well, right? Then guess what? You want to be in something super thin, firm, and light, okay? If you're looking to offset load to the foot, any cushion, any rocker, any heel bevel offsets load to the foot. Now, again, can you walk easier that way? Yes, you can. Can you run easier that way? Yes, you can. But Wolf's Law says if you take away stress, you get weaker. And we know that when you make things weaker, they don't get better. Okay, nothing gets better with rest. And so then we look at super shoes, we have a different category now, right? Of like, okay, now we have springs, right? And running shoe companies can't say springs because IAAF, it makes it illegal, uh, but they're a spring. I mean, be clear, it, it's a, the combination, it's not the foam, it's not the plate, it's both together, right? They're tuning away to displace and rebound. Well, I'm gonna wait, I wanna yeah. pause there, but please don't lose the train of thought. My contention and what I've seen, you know, it's like none of the shoe companies are making any claims about the carbon fiber part because from what I've seen from the manufacturing side and talking to people on my side of the business, everyone's saying, oh, the carbon fiber is there because if you just had that much of that foam without something in the middle, it would shear almost instantly. So it's structural, not doing, you know, not doing something functional or the structural part is significantly more than the functional part. Um, it's a little bit of both. That That is true that too soft a foam won't, won't hold together. But, uh, um, I have tested some shoes that don't have, uh, plates. They have some other things in them that, that still work, but okay. let me put it this way. When super shoes came out and they want to figure out some way to make these legal, I'm going to back up even more one second. Um, so I swam right as a kid. Uh, and so speedo came out with the speed suit and, um, they said they marketed it as it's slipper than the drag coefficient of your skin. And it was in fact. And so, um, the sanctioning body came down and said, you know what, we don't want to make this, uh, we want to make this about swimming, not about Spoot, bathing suits. So anything has a drag coefficient, you know, greater than this level or less than this level, then is outlawed, right? So um, they put a level on that of what you can do. Cycling for the hour record, right? There's people going to velodrome, which is this kind of bank track, and they ride as fast as they can see how far they can go in an hour. Um, and for a long time, we had just normal road bikes. And then air bars came out and disc wheels and changes in position. And so um, the governing body came out and said, hey, we want the sport to be about the rider and not the bike. So we have limits on geometry as far as how far you can do things. So th there's a preface here that we have restraints to keep things sort of about the athlete and not about the equipment. When it comes to super shoes, it's interesting because now you've got this, um, this different state where how do we control this? Do we make it about the phone? Do we make it about the spring? Do we make this about how do we quantify this and give people boundaries, right? Um, and so it got it got tough and nobody wants to stifle innovations. But um, so the governing body came through and said, okay, we're giving you 40 millimeters of stack height. You can do whatever you want with those 40 millimeters. You go be creative, right? And that's still going to be legal. Now, this is really interesting. A few months ago, another company came out with a shoe which is a stack height of 44 millimeters, and that is illegal. But here's the thing. They're claiming, oh, even though we're illegal, we're faster. And yes, you are faster because I gave you more room to compress and rebound. So I, I just, if you're, if you're bored, I, I made a little video on YouTube. You can, if you uh, Google uh, a masterclass on super shoes, my last name will come up, but I use this as a little as a as a visual to show, to show what happens. It's me jumping on the ground up and down. Okay, so I'm I'm jumping on the ground, um, and if I'm doing that, I'm using what my body. Okay, I'm I was barefoot, just jumping on the ground. Then so all the muscles and tendons in my legs are doing all the work. Then I jumped on a trampoline. I mean, you jump on a trampoline. That trampoline gives 
and rebounds and springs me back up again. And you can see really easily, I jump way higher, right? With the same amount of effort, even less effort, right? Jumping on trampoline. Anybody can do this. Yeah, then, it's, actually more, it's actually more effort because you're having to do more work with your legs and hips. Because well, it's, it's different like, stiffening. Like, like, I mean, well, it's, it's definitely, yeah. Because look, jumping rope, I can do that for way longer than I can jump on a trampoline because when I'm jumping rope, everything's much more stiff. I'm using things better. When I'm on a tramp, my legs get tired fast. You watch, you watch just for the fun of it, uh, competitive jump ropers, and sometimes they're just told, stop, you won, there's no need to keep going. You watch competitive trampolinists, they're getting lower and lower and lower with every jump, and they're done in 30 seconds. So Yeah, I mean, it certainly, it definitely takes takes effort. But yeah, go back to that point here real quick. Yeah, important. sorry. So that's okay. Um, so when you're jumping a trampoline, right, that trampoline material is distorting, and then it's right. rebound, right? So yes, you're still working, but the trampoline is doing the work. The work is forced through a distance, right? It is yep. compressing through a distance, and is rebounding you back up again. So... Then what I did was I took some firewood that was sitting right there and I stuck it underneath the trampoline that I'm jumping on. And so now that trampoline can't give as far, right? It can only move about half the distance it was deforming because, again, work is forced through a distance. And you see very clearly, I don't jump as high. Yeah. So when we allow something else to move you, if I shrink the distance, I make it less effective. So when you say what's coming there's a reality here. If I allow for more translation to center mass, you're going to springboard back up again, like period, right. in the story. Okay. So when you look at what's, what, what's out there, we need to look at how we can take technology and still keep the human in mind. Because again, when you offload the body, dangerous things start to happen. And here's one thing that's really important too. If you use my trampoline example, if you happen to jump perfectly up and down, then your body moves perfectly up and down. But we don't do that, right? We drift a little bit sideways, forward, back. You come in a little bit of an angle. And if you come in a little bit of an angle, what's the trampoline do? It springs you back off at the angle again. So now you've got an increase, not just in vertical speed and forward speed, but you've got more instability in your system. Who wants to run with your friend pushing you right and left as you run behind you? That's like, like no, okay? Yeah. And that's what's happened when you come in these super shoes, you're unaccustomed to them. If you've got a little imbalance, super shoes will increase your imbalance. It'll magnify it. And so now you've got a certain person who's used to running a certain way. And you said, let me put the super shoe on and I'm going to run in a certain new way now. And now I've got tissues being loaded more throughout a given range of motion, every single stride. Guess what happened? Body starts to go, I'm not prepared for this. We're done. Okay. So, very long-winded way of saying, I hope we can get some semblance of common sense coming in. We say, we've got footwear that helps the footwork as it's supposed to. And we've got footwear that has a comp competitive purpose, right? If, if you fit, and again, we're still trying to figure out how do we really match these shoes yeah. to different people, right? Like, yeah. you know, when you go to, when you go, if those of you who skate ski, you walk in the shop and they basically have you stand on a scale, not weight shaming you. They're just seeing how heavy do you weigh, right? And how stiff a ski do you need to camber and decamber uh, underfoot? Those of you who don't skate ski, sorry for the reference, but it's simple. It's weight categorized um, because there's not much elasticity in, in, in skate skiing. Sorry, my computer's pinging. Um, right. But when we look at, um, at, at running, there's more to it than just body weight. 
right? And so we have to look at, those of you who are curious, we look at body weight, yes. We look at uh, stride speed, we look at stride contact style, dynamics, even the tightener, what's called the contractile proteins in your muscles, which is a genetic thing. Even that makes a difference in how these forces go through into your actual body parts. So there's a lot of things that are really hard to quantify right now. Again, this technology is kind of its early stages. Um, you know, as we figure out how to classify these more, we'll probably be able to do a better job. But right now, it is the wild west. And uh, yeah. It is fascinating to me just sort of seeing like, you know, we less bumped into each other at the trade show called the running event. It's all for running shoe stores, mostly uh, all mostly anyway, mostly running shoe stores, some others. Um, and everybody had some giant quote super shoe and you could replace the logos between the shoe brands and you could never tell the difference primarily. And the biggest thing that I saw that blew my mind was the companies that are doing, I don't know what they called them, but I call them single use shoes. And the idea is you can wear these for a race and then they're done. And oh, by the way, they cost about four or $500. I mean, that just blew my mind. Yep. So yeah. we shall see. I mean, you know, here's a question for you. How then, given what we've just said, will, do you, I can't even think of the right verb here. How do you think about, it's an easy verb, um, our friend, Dr. Phil Maffetone, who still holds on to the idea that the first person who's going to run a legit sub two hour marathon We'll do it on a course similar to what Kipchoge did and basically just, you know, smooth and not a whole lot of turns, but we'll do it in bare feet. And he, and his reasons for there are a number of his reasons. I don't know how familiar you are with the reasons, but thoughts? Well, I have not heard his quote, but I can tell you that uh, that we know that feet actually do a very good job on their own. <laughs> and when you put <laughs> stuff between the foot and the ground, they don't work as well, period. So... The, the 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 idea of having someone run to barefoot is totally within the realms of physiology. I'm not even surprised by that statement. He, he's fundamentally uh, read, wrote a whole book called 159 uh, or 1 colon 59. So one hour, 59 minutes. And it's in many ways, not really based on, but may as well have been based on Ron Hill, who won the 10K in Mexico barefoot. And when someone said, you know, why'd you run barefoot? His answer was they were the lightest shoes I could find. And that's a big part of, you know, Phil's idea is you got nothing getting in the way. You're going to be more responsive. You'll be stronger, et cetera. It's so, you know, and people say, well, why don't you just find some athlete and sponsor them and do that? I go, yeah, um, we don't have the kinds of millions of dollars these people are getting paid to to do this. And more importantly, it would be a couple of years of training for someone to get used to doing that kind of distance and handle that correctly, which raises, you know, the, the other obvious point. It blows my mind that to this day, people will watch somebody win some race in some shoe and people, you know, who are not a 105 pound Kenyan running roughly over two hours for 26 miles, they will then go buy that same shoe if they are 350 pounds who can barely complete a 5K. And I'm not trying to body or distance shame anybody, just trying to draw a discrepancy between the person wearing that shoe and then what happens in the marketplace, which just blows my mind. Steve, years ago, I was uh, at a track workout with some of my athletes who uh, was three Olympians, and it was kind of an open open track session, right? And there was community folks there doing their own track workouts. And it's one of the things which I, it's like, you know, certain things stick with you, right? And these athletes had just finished a workout, right? And they just, you know, blew splits out the water and people just kind of, you know, rubbernecking as they're watching, they're doing their own workout, right? And, and after the workout, they're sitting there, you know, just doing some recovery stuff in the, in the middle of the field. And Bunch of people come by and like, what shoes are you running in? What do you do for this and that? And that, and and they just kept peppering with all these stupid equipment questions. And I, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be stupid. But like it was just like, and Matthew sat there, right, and just listened to it and tried to put on a nice face, right. And then when the group walked away, one of them just said, 
if those people had any idea how much hard training we have to do to show up day in, day out and do these things, they quit running. And yeah. it just goes to go for the fact that this stuff takes work. And yes, the people you see are in the new shiny, fancy stuff because they're they're selling the product, right? It's, it's reality. But you don't understand. It takes a lot of hard work, right? I know we live in a world where people are like, what's the three exercises? What's the one thing to do? If it was that simple, then we'd all be Olympians, right? We'd all be single records. And it's not that simple. It's actually quite hard. And, yeah. you know, on that note, it's interesting to me that, you know, I, I'm old, right? So if I go back 20 years ago and you said, who does core work? People are like, what the hell's core work, right? These days, everybody does core work. Up until five years ago, you said, who does hip work? Uh, what the hell is hip work? Recently, oh, okay, hip works. Oh, yeah, I should do my rotational hip control, right? It's starting to become more in vogue. And you talk about, okay, well, guess what? Your spine's a body part. Your hip's a body part. Guess what? Your foot and ankle are body part too. And putting your shoe and sock on doesn't make that irrelevant, okay? And so you have to keep – I tell my athletes, like, look, we're leaving no stone unturned here, right? Like you've got a goal of doing whatever it is you want to do. That's your goal. I just want to help enable you to get there, right? And so what I'm going to ask every single person listening to this is I want you to look backwards at whatever your goal is, Make whatever your goal. Maybe I want to walk on a hike pain-free. Maybe you're going to run a marathon this year. I don't care what it is. It's your goal. It's awesome, right? But let's work back from there. And make sure that you're taking care of your body, right? Because we don't. We think, oh, I'll just do this one thing. It's fine. This one exercise. That's not enough. It, it never is, right? And so start somewhere. Build some habits for sure. But if you really want to make a commitment to yourself, make them a commitment. Put the time in because you will see results. Consistency always wins, right? At the end of the day, the one time you screwed up and had a, a cookie is not going to hurt you. But yeah. you know, all those days you didn't, you know, you didn't show up and have some fruits and veggies and take care of your body. That's the problem with nutrition, right? Same thing for your body. If you miss one day, so what, right? But like the years and decades of work that you built up and taking care of your body and building stuff building control, that stuff really matters. And, and I just, I put that in there just to say, again, I'm the PT, right? I'm the guy who you call when you're broken and I don't want you broken. I want my phone to stay quiet. I'm not peeing when it's been, sorry. <laughs> um, but, you know, and, and that comes into taking care of your body. Yeah. And, and it, well, you know. It's funny you say that. Yesterday, I got an email from uh, Joel Smith that was talking about this in a different way. It's like, you know, basically you want to get your whole body to be able to handle whatever you're doing. And there's, even if you're doing something that's the same thing, running, it's just moving forward. Your legs are doing the same thing unless you're on the trail. Um, and, but that doesn't mean there's not these little things that you need to be strong enough to handle. And in this, this email that he sent, it's like, Hey, look at, let's look at the, I'm reading this. Look at the general physical preparation methods of the Polish weightlifting team from the 1980s. And what I can tell you is they're doing better gymnastics than most, you know, high school gymnasts. Um, they're doing all this stuff to just get super, super strong, super flexible, super, you know, just really become good all around athletes. Now that said, gives me a flashback. The first time I walked into a CrossFit gym, they were trying to get me to sign up there. We're going to make you a better athlete. I went, yeah, I don't want to be a better athlete. I just want to get that much faster in the hundred meters. <laughs> they just didn't know how to deal with that. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I had a friend who went to undergrad in Austria, right? And she was in the kinesiology program there. And the kinesiology program, to get in, to, in, to get into the kinesiology program, you had to meet their standards list. Their standards list, 
I think there's probably 1% of the population in the U.S. who would meet it. You had to like be able to run a certain you know distance a certain time, do a certain amount of pull-ups, push-ups, you know, swim a certain amount of distance, dragging uh, this weight behind you into the pool, you know, like do all these crazy, you had to do like tumbling was part of the entrance to the kinesiology. It was like, you had to be a specimen, a ninja warrior would get in, right? Like, yeah. and it just, again, the, they wanted you to say, okay, look, if you're looking to study this field, we want you to be excellent at these things. So you're built good behaviors, good body awareness. We want to teach you to learn through feeling, right? We learn through play, right? And so the more you do things, the more you body learn skill movement, the more you can develop a better movement ability and to do all the things you want to do, right? It's obviously an extreme example, but I just go yeah. back to that. I'm like, man, they walk the walk, right? Yeah. It's a thing that I, I've said, uh, I wish that to graduate high school, you had to be able to do a roundoff back handspring. I mean, just something just to get people to learn how to move in ways that otherwise yeah. they wouldn't. That changes the way you think about the world. I mean, every gymnast that I know talks about how much they like being upside down. No one else has that conversation. And it literally does things to you that are, you know, can be very, very helpful. But 100%. yeah, that's, that's a whole other conversation. I'm trying to think if there's anything else in this, anything we're missing in the wonderful world of super shoes. Uh, I just, again, like they're tools, right? They're tools. Yeah. They do change things. They might help you run faster. They might not, but they're going to change your gait regardless. Um, and if you're going to do anytime you change anything footwear related, you need to make sure you adapt. Right. And so, you know, people say it takes a year. It doesn't take a year for your tissues to adapt, but it takes several weeks to months, depending on the different body part. And you want to make sure you do it slowly. Well, I'm going to say it depends a little bit. I mean, the shoe is going to force a gait change that you would otherwise not necessarily do on your own. Uh, this is an interesting bit of timing. I'm getting together on tomorrow night, uh, Friday night when I'm recording this, and then Saturday with um, uh, Nick Romanoff from Pose Method. And Jeez. we've had interesting conversations about, you know, the optimal form, et cetera. But it makes me think of another conversation with our friend Benno Nig. And Benno, his whole thing is don't arbitrarily change your form because that's the thing that's going to get you injured. And the shoes are semi-arbitrarily changing your form. Now, I have arguments with Benno about this whole idea because there's ways of changing your, I mean, you know, it's like you have to arbitrarily change your form if you're going to learn to do a round off back handspring double backflip. That's not a normal thing. You have to learn to change your form if you want to be a better sprinter and you're just not one of these genetically gifted people who has perfect form from day one, which is pretty much, you know, one or not even 1% of the population. So you have to learn things properly. You have to learn, be able to learn new movement patterns, which brings up another point. My undergraduate research was all about how you learn new movement patterns. And it's not by making an instantaneous acute change. It's by slowly and in slow motion, learning how to do it till your brain feels comfortable and then you get better, faster, et cetera. So this is just violating all the principles of neurological learning. A hundred percent. You know, I, I've always said for years and I actually given talk this morning to my students about this. I was, I was basically saying, look, anytime you see anybody do anything, anything like get up from a chair, what you're seeing is their best compensation. You're seeing, <laughs> yeah, you're yeah, saying, yeah. You're saying today, with a given amount of range of motion, strength, and flexibility, you and stability you've got, that's how you get from a chair. That's how you walk across the room. That's how you do a back handspring, right? And so, if you want to change form, if you force a change, you typically wind up doing two things. One, you screw up neuromotor control, as you said, right? You don't have a motor uh, muscle memory dialed in, and two you overload the body because your body doesn't have the requisite. It hasn't been exposed to that amount of strength and strain for a long period of time. And let me actually give you a really good example of this. So 
I'm going to give a plug here because I can do that. Uh, my my book, Running Rewired, there's a second edition. I just went oh, wait, to- Wait, hold on, hold um, on. Since, first of all, this is going to be the first podcast other than the last time we talked where people aren't going to have to watch, listen to it in double speed because you and I are, I mean, we just get into a race. So pitch your book again, but say it slow enough that people can figure out what the fuck you said. <laughs> All right. Um, I wrote a book called Running Rewired, came out uh, about five years ago. Um, the second edition just went to the printer uh, literally last week. It'll be out in March. But um, I have a chapter in there, some, a lot of new content, but I have a new chapter in there. Um, we talk about what happens in master's runners, right? And, ma- and master's athletes. And this is really interesting to talk about the idea behind movement versus how things change and how things get overloaded. A lot of people will say that, oh, we see changes in master's runners. We see average results in master's runners show things shifting in this direction, right? Oh, when people age, my metabolism slows down. Okay, I'm going to tell you, one, your metabolism does not slow down as you age. You decrease your lean body mass, which affects your metabolism. And guess what happens when you decrease your lean body mass? You can't generate enough force production down on the ground. And when you do that, you still want to go for a four-mile run. You can do a four-mile run. But because you can't apply as much force down on the ground, guess what happens? Your stride compensates. Okay. And so the problem is not the fact that as you age, you are in peril. The problem is you're not doing enough work to take care of those body parts we talked about to make sure you show up ready. And so going back to the idea behind compensation and force changes and all these things, right? If you actually do strength and power work, you can put down just as much force down on the ground as you did when you were younger. Okay. Now you might, you're not going to sprint, you know, what you could at 40, but what you could at 20, but but you can do a whole heck of a lot better. So, you know, it's interesting to me, there's a lot of research coming out showing, oh, master's runners do this, not more susceptible to these injuries. What are you doing outside of running? Because this is a line from my book. If you asked any biomechanist, any physical therapist, how to improve specific characteristics of bone, muscle, and tendon, we would not say running. I'm not saying it's bad for you, but it's not the most optimal stimulus to improve those body parts. To improve each body part requires targeted intervention. Those cells which make your muscles, bones, tendons, ligaments regenerate, okay, are all different in how they respond to stimulus. And so you need to think comprehensively. And so going back to your point about like when you force a cue or force a certain stride compensation, you don't know how to handle that. If you show up with a better body, you can do more awesome things. I love that. Speaking as a master sprinter and watching things get slower, slightly slower every year. Uh, it's like my goal, my 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 now goal is just I want to hit all American times every five years. That's it. And I'll, I'll tell you one thing about master sprinters getting slower over time. There's a race that we have at the end of the season every year up in Fort Collins, Colorado, master's race. And the last event, uh, maybe second to last event, sometimes we'll do you know goofy uh, relays just for the fun of it. But Last or second to last event is an age graded 100 meters. So basically, there's a thing about hitting an All-American time where if you look at the chart for All-American times, you start seeing, you know, up until about 40, 45, they stay pretty consistent. Then they start slowing down um, and then they get really slower once you get over 60 and they get really slower once you get over 75. So if you reverse the the time into distance, what it turns into is a way of taking a bunch of sprinters who are different ages and having them run a different amount of distance, different distance for hundred meters. So at 61, I think I run like, I don't remember, 76 meters, something like that. The young guys are running a full hundred. The 80 year olds are running like 40 meters. And what's so great about this and what's so amazing and fascinating is that that race is always a photo finish, not for who came in first and versus second. It's all eight positions. You can't tell what's what. And it all happens at, in within the last step 
everybody coalesces. So, you know, you see someone who's thinking they're going to win and they put their arms up and then suddenly like, whoa, what the? And there's everybody right next to them. And the old guys are going, I was freaking out because I was getting chased. And the young guys are going, I was freaking out because I had to chase you guys. And it is so much fun um, that they make you pay to be in this race. And what's even more fun is if you win, you get half of the pot. If you get second, you get 30%. If you get third, you get 20%. And I instituted a policy that whoever wins has to buy pie for everybody else. <laughs> nice. So, yeah, it, 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 it's just a blast. But it is fascinating that, you know, it, it reminds me when Jack LaLanne was 90 something and they were doing a news story about him. And Jack LaLanne, if you're young enough, you don't remember, very big deal, fitness guy. And he um, uh, he also co-invented co the Universal Gym, which you pretty much can't find those anywhere. Anyway, they're showing him bench pressing on the Universal Gym. And he's like, uh, you know, putting out all the force that he can. And if you look closely, you can see it was like 20 pounds that he was lifting. And so, you know, aging is a real thing. And there's things that we can do, like you were saying, to do the best you can with what's going to happen with what you got. Totally. Take care seems of yourself. Like, yeah, seems like a good place to call it a day. Sounds good. <laughs> so let's call it a day. First of all, thank you guys for being here. Everyone who's watching or listening, reminder, go to www.jointhemovementmovement.com to find previous episodes, all the places you can find us and how you can engage with us on social media. By the way, there's nothing you need to do to join. Uh, you can subscribe to hear about new episodes, but there's no secret handshake. There's no money involved. We don't make everyone get up and do a dance in the morning, although that'd be really fun. And if you have any questions, comments, requests, people who you think I should have on the show, I'm still waiting to get somebody on here who thinks I have a case of cranial rectal reorientation syndrome. I'm also trying to make that phrase more popular. And uh, you can drop me an email. Just send me an email, move, M-O-V-E, and join the movement, movement.com. But most importantly, go out, have fun and live life feet first.